Hi folks, this is Ruth. And Dave. Welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Today we're going to continue with Chapter 16 of Anne of Green Gables by Ellen Montgomery. Cue the music. Yes. Ah, how you doing, Rue? Human. I am human. Uh, just life. Lots of things. Health and, and uni and it gets a little intense at times. Right. End of the year. Intensity builds up. But yes. Yeah. And we've been having those atrocious bushfires which of course have affected air quality which of course has consequences. Ah, yeah. It's been very hazy and smoky around. Mm-hmm. Now... I guess we are lucky in that I don't think we're in any danger of the bushfires reaching us. Not where we live specifically, um, not the suburb kind of areas where we live, but other areas that are fairly close are badly affected. Like there's yeah. been evacuations less than an hour's drive away from us. It's, uh, I mean, every year they're terrible, but it seems that every year they're worse. Yeah, um, causes a complex... Climate change is definitely a contributing factor. Uh, changes in rain. In uh, uh, One big thing that's come up is that there seems to have been some... Um, expert advice was dismissed, apparently. Yeah, um, that, that, which that happens great. a lot, sadly. Yes, which is kind of frustrating. But... Uh, it is unfortunately um, when our governance is not focused on long-term well-being of the population that will happen. It's 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 a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Industry and population need to probably have some common ground, some common goals, but that doesn't really happen. Yeah. Anyway, but yes. But uh, we get a nice little reprieve by traveling to the world of Green Gables. Yes, we do. And it's kind of funny because, um, well, we remember like last time there was the big blowout and Anne now refuses to go to school because there was just extreme injustice experienced. And in their talk, both Merla and Mrs. Rachel Lynn think that Anne was in the right, but you cannot tell her that. Yes, um, that cannot be reinforced that way. But at the same time, Mrs. Lynn's approach is to kind of go, yeah, just let her stay home. Let her recover a bit. And she'll miss her friends. Yeah, she'll get... And at the end of the, the, the chapter, we did note that she is desperately missing Diana as to cry and hate the husband that doesn't even exist yet to the point where Marilla couldn't she hold cracked. back. And she burst into laughter. That's right. Yes. yes. Oh, Anne. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, fun fact, this episode, uh, so this episode, this chapter is set in Northern Hemisphere's fall season, so October. Um, I say this because the first word of the chapter is, aside from the title, is October. So the month that has just passed us. Mm-hmm. We're in November upon recording. Um, yes, for recording, not so much for release, but yes, yeah. Okay. Um, 
I'm looking forward to the um, the chapter title. Yes, so the chapter title, chapter 16, Diana is invited to tea with tragic results. They but she's Anne's got just this talent for getting herself into scrapes. But I we and we've mentioned this before because of her temper, uh, she doesn't linger on them like she feels them, she's indignant, but then it passes. Yes, yeah, she just tend to let go. But um, but she learns usually, usually, I think. I think she struggles with some of them. But um, would, uh, on that note, let's get started. Which is Diana is invited to tea with tragic results. October was a beautiful month at Green Gables, where the birches in the hollow turned as golden as sunshine, and the maples behind the orchard were royal crimson, and the wild cherry trees along the lane put on the loveliest shades of dark red and bronzy green while the fields sunned themselves in aftermaths. Anne reveled in the world of colour about her. Oh, Marilla, she exclaimed one Saturday morning, coming dancing in with her arms full of gorgeous boughs. I am so glad I live in a world where there are Octobers. It would be terrible if we just skipped from September to November, wouldn't it? Look at these maple branches. Don't they give you a thrill? Several thrills? I'm going to decorate my room with them. (laughs) Messy things, said Marilla, whose aesthetic sense was not noticeably developed. You clutter up your room entirely too much with out-of-door stuff, Anne. Bedrooms were made to sleep in. Oh, and dream in too, Marilla. And you know one can dream so much better in a room when there are pretty things. I'm going to put these boughs in the old blue jug and set them on my table. Mind you don't drop leaves all over the stairs, then. I'm going on a meeting of the Aid Society at Carmody this afternoon, Anne, and I won't be likely home before dark. You'll have to get Matthew and Jerry their supper, so mind you don't forget to put the tea to draw until you sit down at the table as you did last time. It was dreadful of me to forget, said Anne apologetically, but that was the afternoon I was trying to think of a name for Violet Vale, and it crowded other things out. Matthew was so good, he never scolded a bit. He put the tea down himself and he said we could wait a while as well as not. And I told him a lovely fairy story while we were waiting, so he didn't find the time long at all. It was a beautiful fairy story, Marilla. I forgot the end of it, so I made up an end for it myself. And Matthew said he couldn't tell where the join came in. Matthew would think it all right, and if you took a notion to get up and have dinner in the middle of the night. But you keep your wits about you this time. And... I don't really know if I'm doing right. It may make you more adulpated than ever. But you can ask Diana to come over and spend the afternoon with you and have tea here. Oh, Marilla, Anne clasped her hands. How perfectly lovely. You are able to imagine things after all, or else you'll never have understood how I've longed for that very thing. It will seem so nice and grown-uppish. No fear of my forgetting to put the tea to draw when I have company. Oh, Marilla... Can I use the rosebud spray tea set? No, indeed. The rosebud tea set. Well, what next? You know I never use that except for the minister or the aides. You'll put down the old brown tea set, but you can open the little yellow crock of cherry preserves. It's time it was being used anyhow. I believe it's beginning to work. And you can cut some fruit cake and have some of the cookies and snaps. I can just imagine myself sitting down at the head of the table and pouring out the tea, said Anne, shutting her eyes ecstatically. 
and asking Diana if she takes sugar. I know she does, of course, but I'll ask her just as if I didn't know. And then pressing her to take another piece of fruit cake and another helping of preserves. Oh, Marilla, it's a wonderful sensation just to think of it. Can I take her into the spare room to lay off her hat when she comes, and then into the parlor to sit? No, the sitting room will do for you and your company. But there's a bottle half full of raspberry cordial that was left over from the church social the other night. It's on the second shelf of the sitting room closet, and you and Diana can have it if you like, and a cookie to eat with it along in the afternoon. For I dare say Matthew'll be late coming in to tea since he's hauling potatoes to the vessel. Anne flew down to the hollow, past Dryad's bubble, and up the spruce path to Orchard Slope, to ask Diana for tea. As a result, just after Marilla had driven off to Carmody, Diana came over dressed in her second-best dress, and looking exactly as it is proper to look when asked out to tea. At other times she was wont to run into the kitchen without knocking, but now she knocked primly at the front door, and when Anne dressed in her second best as primly opened it, both little girls shook hands as gravely as if they had never met before. <laughs> this unnatural solemnity lasted until after Diana had been taken to the east gable to lay off her hat, and then had sat for ten minutes in the sitting room, toes in position. "'How is your mother?' inquired Anne politely. "'just as if she had not seen Mrs. Barry picking apples that morning in excellent health and spirits. "'She is very well, thank you. "'I suppose Mr. Cuthbert is hauling potatoes to the Lily Sands this afternoon, is he?' "'said Diana, who had ridden down to Mr. Harmon Andrews that morning in Matthew's cart. "'Yes, our potato crop is very good this year. "'I hope your father's crop is good too.' "'It is fairly good, thank you. "'Have you picked many of your apples yet?' Oh, ever so many, said Anne, forgetting to be dignified and jumping up quickly. Let's go out to the orchard and get some of the red sweetings, Diana. Marilla says we can have all that are left on the tree. Marilla is a very generous woman. She said we could have fruit cake and cherry preserves for tea. But it isn't good manners to tell your company what you are going to give them to eat, so I won't tell you what she said that we could drink. Only it begins with an R and a C, and it is a bright red colour. I love bright red drinks, don't you? They taste twice as good as any other colour. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Given her ADD, this explains so much. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's a pearl of wisdom, or at least it's a trope. Not a trope. It's, uh, it's often said um, in this culture, you don't give kids red cordial. No, no. There's a large proportion of the population that responds to the red, na- natural reds in foods. It's in a strange way. But, yeah. The orchard, with its great sweeping boughs that bent to the ground with fruit, proved so delightful that the little girls spent most of the afternoon in it, sitting in a grassy corner where the frost had spared the green, and the mellow autumn sunshine lingered warmly, eating apples and talking as hard as they could. Diana had much to tell Anne of what went on in school. She had to sit with Gertie Pye, and she hated it. Gertie squeaked her pencil all the time, and it made her, Diana's, blood run cold. Ruby Gillis had charmed all her warts away, Trusy Liv, with the magic pebble that old Mary Jo from the creek gave her. You had to rub the warts with the pebble, and then throw it away over your left shoulder at the time of the new moon, and the warts would all go. 
Charlie Sloane's name was written up with M. White's on the porch wall, and M. White was awful mad about it. Sam Bolter had sassed Mr. Phillips in class, and Mr. Phillips whipped him, and Sam's father came down to the school and had dared Mr. Phillips to lay a hand on one of his children again, and Matty Andrews had a new red hood and a blue crossover with tassels on it, and the airs she put on about it were perfectly sickening. (laughs) And Lizzie Wright didn't speak to Mamie Wilson because Mamie Wilson's grown-up sister had cut out Lizzie Wright's grown-up sister with her bow. And everybody missed Anne so and wished she'd just come back to school again. And Gilbert Blythe, but Anne didn't want to hear about Gilbert Blythe, she jumped up hurriedly and said, suppose they go in and have some raspberry cordial. Anne looked on the second shelf of the room pantry, but there was no bottle of raspberry cordial there. Search revealed it away back on the top shelf. Anne put it on a tray and set it out on the table with a tumbler. Now please help yourself, Diana, she said politely. I don't believe I'll have any just now. I don't feel as if I wanted any after all those apples. Diana poured herself out a tumbler full, looked at its bright red hue admiringly, and then sipped it daintily. That's awfully nice raspberry cordial, Anne, she said. I didn't know raspberry cordial was so nice. (laughs) I'm real glad you like it. Take as much as you want. I'm going to run out and stir the fire up. There's so many responsibilities on a person's mind when they're keeping house, isn't there? When Anne came back from the kitchen, Diana was drinking her second glassful of cordial, and, being entreated thereunto by Anne, she offered no particular objection to the drinking of a third. The tumblerfuls were generous ones, and the raspberry cordial was certainly very nice. The nicest I ever drank, said Diana. It's ever so much nicer than Mrs. Lynn's, although she brags of hers so much. It doesn't taste a bit like hers. I should think Marilla's raspberry cordial would probably be much nicer than Mrs. Lynn's, said Anne loyally. Marilla's a famous cook. She's trying to teach me to cook, but I assure you, Diana, it's uphill work. There's so little scope for imagination in cookery. You just have to go by rules. The last time I made a cake, I forgot to put the flour in. I was thinking the loveliest story about you and me, Diana. I thought you were desperately ill with smallpox and everybody deserted you, but I went boldly to your bedside and nursed you back to life. And then I took the smallpox and died. And I was buried (laughs) under those poplar trees in the graveyard and you planted a rosebush by my grave and watered it with your tears. And you never, ever forgot the friend of your youth who sacrificed her life for you. Oh, dear. Yeah, wow. (laughs) Oh, it was such a pathetic tale, Diana. Now, see, pathetic is being used in a positive way here. It's hilarious to me. (laughs) The tears just rained down my cheeks while I mixed the cake, but I forgot the flour, and the cake was a dismal failure. Flour is so essential to cakes, you know. Marilla was very cross, and I don't wonder. I am a great trial to her. She was terribly mortified about the pudding sauce last week. We had a plum pudding for dinner on Tuesday, and there was half the pudding and a pitcher full of sauce left over. Marilla said there was enough for another dinner, and she told me to set it on the pantry shelf and cover it. I meant to cover it just as much as could be, Diana, but when I carried it in, I was imagining I was a nun. Of course, I'm a Protestant, but I imagined I was a Catholic. Taking the veil to bury a broken heart in cloistered seclusion... And I forgot all about covering the pudding sauce. I thought of it next morning and ran to the pantry, Diana. 
Fancy, if you can, my extreme horror at finding a mouse drowned in that pudding sauce. Jeez. I lifted the mouse out with a spoon and threw it in the yard. And then I washed the spoon three waters. Marilla was out milking, and I fully intended to ask her when she came in if I'd give the sauce to the pigs. But when she did come in, I was imagining that I was a frost fairy, going through the woods, turning the trees red and yellow, whichever they wanted to be. So I never thought about the pudding sauce again, and Marilla sent me out to pick apples. That's probably the happiest uh, mouse that ever died. Mm. A little bit. A little bit of that. But, well, Mr. and Mrs. Chester Ross from Spencerville came here that morning. You know, they are very stylish people, especially Mrs. Chester Ross. When Marilla called me in dinner, I was all ready and everybody was at the table. I tried to be as polite and dignified as I could be, for I wanted Mrs. Chester Ross to think that I was a ladylike little girl, even if I wasn't pretty. Everything went right until I saw Marilla coming with the plum pudding in one hand and the pitcher of pudding sauce warmed up in the other. Diana, it was a terrible moment. I remembered everything and I just stood in my place and shrieked out, Marilla, you mustn't use that pudding sauce. There was a mouse drowned in it and I forgot to tell you before. Oh, Diana, I shall never forget that awful moment if I live to be a hundred. Mrs. Chester Ross just looked at me, and I thought I would sink through the floor with mortification. She is such a perfect housekeeper, and fancy what she must have thought of us. Marilla turned red as fire, but she never said a word. Then, just as she carried that sauce and pudding out, and brought in some strawberry preserves. She even offered me some, but I couldn't swallow a mouthful. It was like heaping coals of fire on my head. After Mrs. Chester Ross went away, Marilla gave me a dreadful scolding. Why, Diana? What is the matter? Diana had stood up very unsteadily. Then she sat down again, putting her hands to her head. I'm... I'm awful sick, she said a little thickly. I... I must go right home. Oh, you mustn't dream of going home without your tea, cried Anne in distress. I'll get it right off. I'll go and put the tea down this very minute. I must go home, repeated Diana, stupidly but determinedly. Let me get you a lunch anyhow, implored Anne. Let me give you just a bit of fruit cake and some of the cherry preserves. Lie down on the sofa for a little while and you'll be better. Where do you feel bad? I must go home, said Diana, and that was all she would say. In vain Anne pleaded. I never heard of company going home without tea, she mourned. Oh, Diana, do you suppose that it's possible that you're really taking the smallpox? If you are, I'll go and nurse you. You can depend on that, but I'll never forsake you. But I do wish you'd stay until after tea. Where do you feel bad? I'm awful dizzy, said Diana. And indeed, she walked very dizzily. Anne, with tears of disappointment in her eyes, got Diana's hat and went with her as far as the barry yard fence. Then she wept all the way back to Green Gables, where she sorrowfully put the remainder of the raspberry cordial back into the pantry, and got tea ready for Matthew and Jerry, with all the zest gone out of her performance. The next day was Sunday, and as the rain poured down in torrents from dawn till dusk, Anne did not stir abroad from Green Gables. Monday afternoon, Marilla sent her down to Mrs. Rachel Lynn's on an errand. In a very short space of time, Anne came flying back up the lane with tears rolling down her cheeks. 
Into the kitchen she dashed and flung herself face downward on the sofa in an agony. Whatever has gone wrong now, Anne? queried Marilla in doubt and dismay. I do hope you haven't gone and been saucy to Mrs. Lynde again. No answer from Anne save more tears and stormier sobs. Anne Shirley, when I ask you a question, I want to be answered. Sit right up this minute and tell me what you are crying about. Anne sat up, tragedy personified. Mrs. Lynde was up to see Mrs. Barry today, and Mrs. Barry was in an awful state, she wailed. She says that I said... Diana drunk Saturday and sent her home in a disgraceful condition. And she says that I must be a thoroughly bad, wicked little girl and she's never, never going to let Diana play with me again. Oh, Marilla, I'm just overcome with woe. Marilla stared in blank amazement. Set Diana drunk, she said when she found her voice. And are you or Mrs. Barry crazy? What on earth did you give her? Not a thing but raspberry cordial, sobbed Anne. I never thought raspberry cordial would send people drunk, Marilla, not even if they drank three big tumblerfuls as Diana did. Oh, it sounds so, so like Mrs. Thomas's husband, but I didn't mean to set her drunk. Drunk fiddlesticks, said Marilla, marching to the sitting room pantry. There on the shelf was a bottle which she at once recognized as one containing some of her three-year-old homemade currant wine for which she was celebrated in Avonlea, although certain of the stricter sort, Mrs. Barry among them, disapproved strongly of it. And at the same time, Marilla recollected that she had put the bottle of raspberry cordial down in the cellar instead of the pantry, as she had told Anne. I thought that might have been what happened. It's a comedy of errors. Mm. <laughs> um, <coughs> she went back to the kitchen with the wine bottle in her hand. Her face was twitching. <laughs> her face was twitching in spite of herself. And you certainly have a genius for getting into trouble. You went and gave Diana currant wine instead of raspberry cordial. Didn't you know the difference yourself? I never tasted it, said Anne. I thought it was cordial. I meant to be so, so hospitable. <laughs> Diana got awfully sick and had to go home. Mrs. Barry told Mrs. Lynde she was simply dead drunk. She just laughed silly-like when her mother asked her what was the matter and went to sleep and sleep for hours. Her mother smelt her breath and knew that she was drunk. She had a fearful headache all day yesterday. Mrs. Barry is so indignant. She will never believe but what I did it on purpose. I should think that she would better punish Diana for being so greedy as to drink three glassfuls of anything, said Marilla shortly, while three of those big glasses would have made her sick even if it had only been cordial. Well, this story will be a nice handle for those folks who are so down on me for making currant wine, although I haven't made any for three years ever since I found out the minister didn't approve. I just kept that bottle for sickness. There, there, child, don't cry. I can't see as you were to blame, although I'm sorry it happened so. I must cry, said Anne. My heart is broken. The stars in their courses fight against me, Marilla. <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh, she's her, so melodramatic. She's, she is, but she's also this is her first yep. friend, and yep. it's it's. I can understand the heartbreak. Yep. It's painful, you know. For her, her whole world is crumbling. Yeah, <laughs> that she's just discovered. The world she's just discovered is crumbling. 
Diana and I are parted forever. Oh, Marilla, I little dreamed of this when we first swore our vows of friendship. Don't be foolish, Anne. Mrs. Barry will think better of it when she finds you're not to blame. I suppose she thinks you've done it for a silly joke or something of that sort. You'd best go up this evening and tell her how it was. My courage fails me at the thought of facing Diana's injured mother, sighed Anne. I wish you'd go, Marilla. You're so much more dignified than I am. Likely she'd listen to you quicker than to me. Well, I will, said Marilla, reflecting that it would probably be the wiser course. Don't cry any more, Anne. It'll be all right. Marilla had changed her mind about it being all right by the time she got back from Orchard Slope. Anne was watching for her coming and flew to the porch door to meet her. Oh, Marilla, I know by your face it's been no use, she said sorrowfully. Mrs. Barry won't forgive me? Mrs. Barry indeed, snapped Marilla. Of all the unreasonable women I ever saw, she is the worst. I told her that it was all a mistake and that you weren't to blame, but she just simply didn't believe me. And she rubbed it well in about my current wine and how I'd always said it couldn't have the least effect on anybody. I just told her plainly that current wine wasn't meant to be drunk three tumblerfuls at a time, and that if a child I had to do with was so greedy, I'd sober her up with a right good spanking. Com comedy of errors indeed. It's like, if Diana hadn't been so greedy, if, you know, Anne hadn't tried to be so hospitable, if Marilla had not put the wrong bottles away and up and down and... The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Oh, so if, if, if. Ifs and buts. Anyway. <clears throat> Marilla whisked into the kitchen, grievously disturbed, leaving a very much distracted little soul on the porch behind her. Presently Anne stepped out, bareheaded into the chill autumn dusk. Very determinedly and steadily, she took her way down through the sear clover field over the log bridge and up through the spruce grove, lighted by a pale little moon hanging low over the western woods. Mrs. Barry, coming to the door to answer a timid knock, found a white-lipped, eager-eyed suppliant on the doorstep. Her face hardened. Mrs. Barry was a woman of strong prejudices and dislikes, and her anger was of the cold, sullen sort, which is always hardest to overcome. To do her justice, she really believed Anne had made Diana drunk out of sheer malice prepense, and she was honestly anxious to preserve her little daughter from the contamination of further intimacy with such a child. "'What do you want?' she said stiffly. Anne clasped her hands. Oh, Mrs. Barry, please forgive me. I did not mean to to intoxicate Diana. How could I? Just imagine if you were a poor little orphan girl that kind people had adopted and you had just one bosom friend in all the world. Do you think you would intoxicate her on purpose? I thought it was only raspberry cordial. I was firmly convinced it was the raspberry cordial. Oh, please don't say that you won't let Diana play with me any more. If you do, you'll cover my life with a dark cloud of woe. This speech, which would have softened good Mrs. Lynn's heart in a twinkling, had no effect on Mrs. Barry except to irritate her still more. She was suspicious of Anne's big words and dramatic gestures and imagined that the child was making fun of her. Mm -hmm. So she said, coldly and cruelly, I don't think you are a fit little girl for Diana to associate with. You'd better go home and behave yourself. Anne's lips quivered. "'Won't you let me see Diana just once to say farewell?' she implored. 
Diana has gone over to Carmody with her father, said Mrs. Barry, going in and shutting the door. Anne went back to Green Gables, calm with despair. My last hope is gone, she told Marilla. I went up and saw Mrs. Barry myself, and she treated me very insultingly, Marilla. I do not think she is a well-bred woman. There is nothing more to do except to pray, and I haven't much hope that that will do much good, because, Marilla, I do not believe that God himself can do very much with such an obstinate person as Mrs. Barry. <laughs> wow. And... <laughs> Anne, you shouldn't say such things, rebuked Marilla, striving to overcome that unholy tendency to laughter, which she was dismayed to find growing upon her. <laughs> and indeed, when she told the whole story to Matthew that night, she did laugh heartily over Anne's tribulations. But when she slipped into the east gable before bed and found that Anne had cried herself to sleep, an unaccustomed softness crept into her face. Poor little soul, she murmured, lifting a loose curl of hair from the child's tear-stained face. And then she bent down and kissed the flushed cheek on the pillow. Oh. Oh. It's so sad, but yeah. it's also like... She, 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 these challenges, they're bringing out more and more of the... I think, in a way, when we look at Marilla and Matthew, how much of this story is about Anne? How much of it is about... Marilla and Matthew, who've been so isolated and kind of in that corner away, they've been part of the village, but they've not been part of a village. I, I think it's more about Anne's effect on the people around her because she's definitely softening Marilla up. She's, she's making her, her, I guess, her heart bloom, if that and makes sense. I do like Marilla. No, oh, Marilla's, Marilla's hilarious, but awesome. Well, well, especially now that she's finding herself uh, having to hold back laughter at uh, Anne's melodrama, even though, as we said, this, this is a very, uh, a, a very um, a tumultuous situation, yeah, especially so it's, it's for she, her. I don't think she takes away from the validity of her feelings. She's just trying to encourage her to... Well, Anne's getting at that truth again when when she complained about how boring the minister's sermons were. You know, Anne's like cutting right to the heart of the matter, and because she's an innocent little girl, you know, hearing hearing the truth come without pretense or coax or or um, manipulation. There's no manipulation in it. Well, I I mean, kind of, you know, often as adults, we try and soften the truth by hiding it and other things. Yeah. You know, unraveling it shortly, whereas she just kind of delivers it, bam. Well, for her, her perception and how she sees things, she's almost always acting in an emotional high. Mm. I actually was, I've been looking at a, um, a therapy thing. Yeah, so she's, so from, from a couple of these, um, so I'm looking at dialectical behavioral therapy and some of the information. The, the discussion that comes up is that emotional regulation is a big thing. I think I've mentioned it before in, when we were discussing Anne. Her emotional re- regulation is out of, a little out of whack. And right. trauma can trigger that off. Also, if you're, you're neuro, you have a neurological uh, situation such as ADD or like it, it, if you're autistic, you, the way we process information mm-hmm. or feelings and emotions is very different. It's almost like that valve is a wee bit broken and everything functions at a much higher threshold. Mm. So I think Marilla's become aware. Well, she mentioned it, that this child's going to have high highs and low lows. Yeah. And it's going to be challenging. And she's very, 
in her own way, she is trying to encourage her to not take everything, mean, take things seriously, be honest. Be, and she is honest and truthful. She's, she's, she's applying morals and principles, but at the same time, she does still, and I'm making like these finger motions of, a, of, a, um, of high waves and peaks, but she has these high peaks and deep troughs when it comes to her emotional state. Yeah. And she expresses it through her melodrama and her stories and yeah. other things. Which, I mean, for a writer, that's great. But for functioning as a little girl in the middle of a, a slightly more um, conservative village setting. Well, in, in you know, any time when you have things to do and you, you can just wander and then get so sucked into the imagination that um, you could become emotionally... Uh, caught up in it yeah well that's and and we saw that like she was saying oh and i did this and then i got distracted and i did this and then i imagined and then i did this and this and i imagined so it's marilla's being i think the balance of their her very common sense very rigid kind of approach she's, she's loosening up a little bit well and I think part of that is finding Anne's melodrama amusing yeah and i think Anne's realized she takes me seriously, but she also thinks that some of the things I say are just over the top and hilarious. And to try, kind of, it, I mean, it's a fine-edged sword. You don't want a sensitive child to feel ridiculed mm-hmm. or humiliated. But at the same time, if you're trying to encourage her to develop honest interactions, if you demonstrate honest interactions, that's not a bad thing either. So it's yeah. kind of like, it's a very fine line. She, I know, And we can see Marilla's trying to control it. She's trying to not... And I, I think also at the end of that chapter there, there's probably a bit of pride because she she went over and talked to Mrs. Barry because she thought Anne was right. Maybe it'd be better if I do it, you know, woman to woman. And then when Mrs. Barry used that as an excuse to, you know, basically bring up everything she disliked about Morello's wine and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Anne decided, oh, you know, she hardened herself, goes, no, okay. I must take the courage and go and try myself. And I think maybe when she came back, even though it was futile, Marilla might have had some pride. Well, well look yeah. at her. She she's, was- she's taking responsibility, even if it was an accident, even if it wasn't intentional. She's trying her best. I think Anne, you can never say she doesn't try. She tries her hardest mm-hmm. at everything. The challenge is, and it's like with the covering of the, the, the pudding sauce, mm-hmm. she means to do something and then will potentially get distracted but that's it, a funny story that is hilarious <laughs> poor mouse uh no and, no that that mouse went so well that's drowning, true. drowning in, in pudding sauce i don't know we we can all hope to go that well <laughs> but I, I don't know like there's these like death by chocolate <laughs> these characters are really like they're very alive and i think the fact that we've said this before mark twain described her as like just jump that the, she comes out of the pages at you but it's not just her and it is all these other characters and how they interact and we all know those traits that, that we see described in mrs barry mm-hmm. we see those traits in mrs rachel lynn and we recognize these as traits and it doesn't matter if this is 1905 yeah well well you know um i mean i could be very wrong but from my my limited experience with the world and all the reading i've done mm. It seems that over the course of recorded human history, especially in the stories we tell, mm. uh, humanity, human nature has not really changed all that much. I, well, I think yes and no. I think there are certain qualities to human nature that 
I, I don't think okay, the thing that hasn't changed it is technology. Technology doesn't change the the fundamentals of patterns of behavior. And like, it's changed the frequency by which we experience it, mm. and it changes the probability by which someone will experience all these different facets. We're experiencing more diverse reactions, which previously we might have had maybe five different ways of looking at a question or a, a, a situation. Now we have millions of ways of looking at a situation. You know, that that's probably it. Um, and not just with looking at a situation, the idea that because of social media, information comes at us so fast, we don't have the time to properly process one piece before the next piece that's, comes. I think that that's, that there's a, that's the risk of it. And I mean it. emotionally processed. Yeah, I mean that's the risk of it. And that's why when we... It doesn't mean that we are more or less capable than our ancestors in terms of emotional processing. What it means is that we have a lot more to process. Well, well what, what I mean by we haven't changed much, that the type of woman Mrs. Berry is, I have a feeling, you know, 2,000 years ago, there'd be a woman like that. Oh, yeah. 5,000 years ago, yeah. there'd be a woman like that. In in a thousand years' time, if we're still around in some form, there'll be a woman like that. Yeah, and, and, and these are, and I think what we have is they're not, um, they're personality traits and they are character traits that even, even if we're social, if we had a society that discouraged us from developing them, people will still be going through their struggle and their personal journey and their personal development and maybe give us a few thousand years and those kind of character traits will be sufficiently discouraged through our education. We've said this before, educational processes, social pressures, perceptions, if, cultural, if no, no one has to want for anything because a, a lot of um, our behaviors are kind of born out of fear and scarcity. Yeah, it, yeah. and I think it, well, it, it's definitely a thing, yeah. Well, what I want to mention about that um, interaction between Anne and Mrs. Berry, the bit that really stuck out to me was after Anne made her plea. It made it worse. Yeah, the, yeah. the um, uh, <clears throat> Mrs. Montgomery wrote about how if this was Mrs. Lynde, that would have softened her heart. But obviously, Mrs. Berry has an insecurity because she felt that Anne, with her big words and her dramatic gestures, was making fun of her. Yeah. Well, here here's the other part. She, the authors pointed out. To do her justice, she really believed that Anne had made Diana drunk yeah. out of sheer malice prepense. She's scared for her daughter. She is, yeah. So this is, a lot of it is fear. Over, and They've commented on it before. They've hinted at it, that she's very overprotective of her daughter. Well, yeah. Um, fe- uh, it's Sadly, uh, it, it's a negative emotion mixed with the positive one. Fear mixed with the love. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and control, uh, and then um, with the big words, yeah, she's suspicious of the big words and the dramatic gestures, and of course she she still has her prejudices as to this child comes from who knows what where. Yep, yep, yep. Um, she has her prejudice regarding the cordial to begin, not cordial, the um, the wine. wine to begin with. Um, she's also probably just been chewed up by Marilla for having a greedy daughter, so that probably would not have gone down well either. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you know, we didn't get to see that conversation. But no, I, but we got into the showdown. <laughs> I imagine that um, Mar- Marilla might have gone there with open intentions, but when she came up against the brick wall that is Mrs. Berry, she might have... Well, we know Marilla can ben be... Ben Kurt. Can be, yes. She can be very, very direct. She's mm. not... Mrs. Lind, 
but she also has a temper and she can also be very harsh mm-hmm. and regarding diana she has commented before that diana's a little bit on the she, she i'm guessing a tumbler in those days would be similar to a tumbler like a giant glass we're talking like a little smaller than a pint like you know a, a beer, a, a australian beer pint i don't know what that would be in no no let's a, not go into that as, as a a greedy child and still a greedy adult i can go through sweets like nobody's business but yeah three giant cups of raspberry cordial that that is a lot <laughs> yeah no that's a lot that's a lot and, and originally i thought she might just have been sick from the sugar content but then my mind keyed to the idea that Anne had to reach in the back of the cupboard to find the raspberry cordial yeah. and then then diana started feeling dizzy i'm like oh no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's gone for the wrong bottle. And I'm yet, t- as a child, to drink three huge tumblerfuls of wine? Okay. A, a tumbler, we're talking 30, 30 ounces or 890 mils usually. Yeah, that, that, that's... Well, that's... Oh, that's... Oh, my God. Yeah, that... And that's, that's, that's not uh, the largest tumbler. That's that's a tumbler. That's an average tumbler. So say we went with the average tumbler. That's that's thirty ounces. The, the, that's the, almost a liter. Well, that's larger than those large Coke bottles that you get. Yeah. So that that's okay. again for our international audiences. This depends on what measurements and available products you have in your region. But but, but think of drinking like three um, six hundred ml bottles of Coke. Almost, yeah. It's, it's more than that. No, no, no. So it's, uh, well, you said eight, the tumbler was 800 mils. No, 890 mils, so 600. Yeah, so... It will be one and a half of those bottles. No, but she drank three tumblers. Oh, oh, sorry. So I just fa- realized what you said. Yeah. Yes, over three sorry. bottles. This is, this is our, our podcast where we evidence that maths and listening and processing that information isn't always a natural thing. But, yes. but that's over three large bottles of Coke. Yeah, that's almost... Ra- and raspberry cordial, oh. like Coke, is pretty much just sugar. Yeah, it's a lot of sugar. Plus, uh, as you mentioned, there's something with that red coloring or something and it has an effect on yeah children. that's not that that combination of events not always man and she 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 went back and for she a did, second and that and wasn't I, and that wasn't cordial <laughs> had it been cordial as marilla pointed out had it even been cordial she would have also been sick but here's the other but this thing. was wine and diana liked it she said this is the best raspberry cordial i've ever drunk yeah let's let's <laughs> not even let, go into the, the oh, makings of uh, the makings of a lush. <laughs> well, more more likely she she because there's okay the teetotaling nature of her mother probably comes from somewhere. Let's let's just do a little deep dive on the hypothetical origins of Mrs. Um, Barry. So Mrs. Barry, we can see, is very controlling, very concerned about the well-being, very anti-alcohol, very strict. Mm. That doesn't come from nowhere. She has to, that usually indicates somewhere in the family, somewhere down the line, they might have a risk of... Yeah, my, um, my, my mom has kind of a rally against alcohol, and that's kind of because her parents drank a, a large amount. Okay. So, so, you know, when, when you have family members, especially when you're young, that you can see maybe the dangers of drinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it kind of raises you to go... That that is a negative. It can yes, it can. When you can see, and I mean, again, I'm going to bring us back to 1905. 1905, fairly isolated. It's not like they have television. They might get a newspaper. 
um, like once. We, we also uh, maybe letters. talked about maybe radio, but probably not. No, no, 1905, unlikely. Right. It wouldn't have been a common thing. Yeah. Especially not in rural, on an island, Canada. Actually, yeah. Otherwise, you'd imagine, like, if radio or television existed, Anne would be glued to it because of the well, radio more the propensity for imagination. See, see, the access to quote unquote easy entertainment and stimulus was less. So you're thinking about in that setting. I mean, we saw how much Anne is making a big deal of having an afternoon tea with a friend. Yep. And we're not talking. We're not talking, oh, we're going to get together, we're going to play board games or whatever. We're talking two people sitting down, eating food together, enjoying. Something, again, comes from um, savoring. It's probably a skill that we need to build up in ourselves individually or consider building up. But savoring just that moment of connection between two people yeah. with a nice, enjoying a nice meal, having a nice I, I mean, cake. I'm not throwing shade because I am guilty of this myself, but when you go out with friends and suddenly everyone pulls out their phones yeah everyone knows them it, it, which which is the thing because we're so used to that stimulation it's and it's quite difficult for some of us also to be able to get continuous stimulation from another human being in terms of social interaction some days we can some days we can't then you've got our neurotypical less neurotypical folk it gets it gets messy yeah. But away from that ramble, I think we're looking at Mrs. Barry. She has a she is acting from fear, but the reason behind her fear, I mean, it's not to excuse her prejudice. It's not to excuse her issues. She is a flawed character, and in fact, that's the thing about this book that really stands out. Every one of these characters has flaws. Well, yeah, they're 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 as we said before, they're human. They are and I think that's the knack. Mrs. Montgomery isn't afraid to show the flaws. She yeah. gives, she tries to uh, soften the blow of some of their flaws by saying, no, these are inherently not evil people or bad people, but their actions and their intentions and the outcomes of their actions, their intentions, their words. That's the thing that's important. And that I was just going to go into that. The, mm. None of these characters are villains. It's very easy to... Um, just make an archetype of yeah this this person is an irredeemable or you know they're a thorn in the side of our main character but the fact that we've just spent so how many many ever minutes talking about what might make mrs barry this way yeah you um, actually want to know this is this is a book that encourages you to develop compassion and and it's interesting even for josie pie which is really disturbing but that's (laughs) anyway well, it's also that thing where, you know, um, I saw it on Twitter recently and I, I joked about it how, um, you, you know, it, it's been a trope in uh, modern storytelling with um, this person does is a villain. They've do, done, they have irredeemable things they've done. But, oh, feel bad for them because they had a sad childhood. Yeah, no, like, yeah. I, and, and, and I get it's, it. it's, it's not, oh, I mean, that's kind of a more... Well, I, I think there's a certain deafness to it. A, none of these people in this book are villains. No. They're people. Yeah. So, so it's, a different, it's a different thing already. But, you know, it, it does also reflect that even in the archetype, tropey nature of, you know, the big bad who did have a bad childhood, it's, it, the, these things make us. And there is truth there, even if it's kind of eye-rolling. But, but of course, in that instance, 
it doesn't excuse the awful behavior that they yeah. and, go, and go and the other do. thing is trauma in your childhood and and a poor childhood and a, a rough childhood by that definition Anne would be the one that mm-hmm. should be the quote-unquote villain yep um if we went by that thing but exactly. she's not well, um, we don't know. We're not through the book yet. No, but it's clear. And my takeover to town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, start evil plans. Uh, we have just invented steampunk in <laughs> again with, with no. her imaginarium. <laughs> yes. No, but the, I think the idea of the evoking pity due to a poor, a, a painful childhood. No, evoking compassion. Yes. Um, and again, if someone does something out literally with intent, harmful with intent of harm, mm-hmm. and also harmful with even without intent, uh, if their actions are harmful and there's a failure to take accountability, I think, see, that's the difference between my, how I perceive a villain and what a villain actually is for me. There's like these three categories. There's this category of someone who doesn't intend to do harm, but does harm and fails to consider that harm that they've done or take accountability for it mm. it's almost like the irresponsible villain yes yes um, and we're using the word villain very loosely here because that's the kind of thing that we see day to day and constant interactions where people just fail to consider that the harm that they've caused another person even if they're but i meant well or but you, i meant well i didn't mean that that way why did you take it that way and there's that that's the other thing you know um sometimes it's impossible to know uh, like I could say something to you today that I meant nothing but positive, but somehow the tone of my voice or just you're at a certain point where you take that sentence yeah. and it hurts you and then you ruminate on it. Yeah. So this, and I've caused harm without intending to or without even understanding or that awareness. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think for that, we require almost a society where people can be open and go and without feeling... Uh, as though they're going to be attacked or as though the person, when you tell it to them, react in a way that's aggressive. Just kind of go, whatever your intentions, what you just said was painful. Right. Um, And then for the person to be able to say, oh, I'm sorry about that. But also sincerely, not go, I'm sorry you felt that you were in pain, but actually kind of go, okay, um, let me review. And like, firstly, I apologize that, that you were harmed. Secondly, let me go and review and see what I was expressing, how I could have expressed it, or if it was even necessary for me to express that. And, and, you know, you probably know this, and most of our listeners probably know this, but I just want to reiterate that um, I'm sorry if you were offended or I'm sorry you feel that way. That's abdicating all personal responsibility. Exactly. It's, It's blaming the person who received the pain as opposed to, or experienced the pain, versus taking responsibility for the outcome as opposed to the intent anyway but that's a whole another big philosophical story so we've got the situation with Anne. i think mrs barry is not a person you can communicate necessarily that well to because she's already got pre-fixed ideas of what you are and aren't and feel and shouldn't and what it gets messy well also just thinking where we are in the story and how important diana is for Anne, my thoughts moving forward is either A, the whole time heals all wounds, and having reflected on both Marilla and Anne yep. coming to talk to her, she might soften. Even Diana coming to realization what happened, 
uh, you know, maybe once her headache's done, well, she now knows what a hangover is, um, maybe she'll be able to uh, rally her mother I, to I her hope cause. so, but from previous comments as to how Mrs. Barry is and that whole cold anger kind of business. Oh, well, we don't even know how um, the relationship between her and her husband, Diana, spending the day with uh, her father, so maybe... Maybe he, like Matthew, was able to soften Marilla. Maybe Mr. Barry is able to we'll soften see. Mrs. I, I, Barry. I think Mrs. Mr. Barry, I think Mrs. Barry wears the pants. Or, you, or you know, it, it, it could be one of those things where it's really sad and uh, Anne has to move on. We will, we will see. I think this is, a, this is a next chapter thing. But with the villain types, we had the first type, right? Oh, you were you were talking about. Yep. Sorry, no, it's okay. I, I rambled. It's fine. Villain two, I think, is that intentional harm. Is that someone who's yeah? So we've got that idea. So we had the unintended unintended harm, but then the villain who doesn't reflect on the doesn't consider the impact. Um, then you've got the people who actually. I'm sure there's people who are in literature who study this, and there's the million villain types. So the three big ones that really stand out. The second one would be the one who, out of bitterness, out of their own personal grievances or pain, will do things deliberately causing harm because they feel it's justified. So it's almost like their personal justification out of pain. So well, speak. There, there is the saying that no one is the villain of their own story. Exactly. And, and I would guess that maybe in 95% of cases of people doing... M- either unintentional or intentional malicious acts, Hmm. it's done from a place of I'm doing the right thing. Well, I think... Even even if it's a misplaced sense of vengeance, you know, because that is the wrong thing, but, but you you know, people excuse themselves. They go, but but I'm justified in doing this. I think most villains, all of, I think all across the board would consider themselves justified. That's not, I think that's a common ground. There is that 5% I'm thinking kind of, you know, like in the Dark Knight, that idea of just anarchy. There are some people who yeah, but will still just justified. do crazy stuff. That's still justified because they're justifying it for their own actions. That this is the philosophy that I choose to apply in my life. Therefore, right. everyone must experience it. So it's a projection of your own values onto others. And in fact, that's what it boils down to. Is that so? That would be the third type of villain. So the second type may know that they're causing harm and may know that they're causing these issues, but they're justified based on their personal. Experiences like I suffered, therefore you must suffer. Or I'm doing this for the greater good. That, I think that's the, the next one. That's where you have someone who projects their philosophies on others and their personal value system, saying, This is how I believe the world should be run, and this, therefore I will run it this way, mm. um, regardless of the harm that I know that it is bringing people. And, and I guess yeah. there's also this might be an offshoot of that. There's the I have a goal I'm moving towards. And I believe in it so strongly that I have no ill will against you, but if you get in my way, I'm going to mow you over. Yeah, again, it's, it's one, projecting your will to the exclusion of the consideration of it. In fact, it boils down to that, consideration. And it boils down to actually caring enough about others to, to consider the impact of your actions or your, your intent. Like, that intention is one thing, but action and outcome or another. And then that, can, that, that whole topic can be huge because um, I think we like to use the term people do something crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Mental health has nothing to do with it. Mental health can, 
can contribute to maybe being less or more aware of impact or intentions or emotional regulation or control, those things. But ultimately, when, if someone is, is choosing to continue forward, knowingly causing harm, with no regard for anyone else but their own will being inflicted on others, knowingly causing harm. Well, you, you know why I think uh, the media especially always tends to go towards the crazy angle is because answering, giving a real answer to the question why these people did this horrific thing would bring up truths that most people do not really want to have in front of them. It's a consequence of the way we encourage society to develop. It's an outcome, not a, not a, um, how do you put it? Because if we said plainly the reason people are doing these horrific acts, we, we would, um, more people would uh, kind of pull their heads out of the sand and realize, yeah, we have to change the way we're doing things. Well, it would actually call for an accountability on social factors, on societal factors that contribute to these situa- these and, individuals. And the people informed. in power who are not doing anything about it. Uh, people in power regardless. People in power also are an outcome of... Uh, I mean, here's the question. What comes first, the people in power or the society that generates them? And it's a bit of both. Um, they are disconnected enough from society to no longer necessarily feel the repercussions directly of behaving in a way that is harmful to society. But they came from the society to begin with. And they were elected by... Well, some are elected, some have... Whatever means. I'm not just talking... When I'm talking leaders, I'm not just talking people we elect or people who are working in a political capacity. Uh-huh. I'm talking industrial leaders, I'm yeah. talking... The people who run the companies, the, the things we use, yeah. People who run the companies, the people who... Uh, Religious leaders. Any leader, anyone who is in a position where the community is impacted in a large scale by determinations that they make, mm. right? That's where it becomes messy. But going back to our little small yeah. tiny village, because yeah, we, we just, we just zoomed out a bit. Um, but zooming in, we, as you said, we don't have villains, but we have, we're gaining a deeper appreciation of the complexity, complexities behind mo- how people act, how people talk, how people behave, how they have to address existing prejudices within themselves but also how that has an impact on the community and the interaction even even in the case of uh what was his name mr andrews the the teacher uh, no that's the girl he likes mr phillips mr phillips like talk, listening to mrs uh lynn talk about him he's got that job because of nepotism and he really should not be he's teaching. not competent no he has yeah to. um plus yeah he's he's making eyes at uh, teenage girls so. and everyone knows it which is a whole nother so so, so mm. like you know he has all the makings of a villain but my mind to him is like oh he should he just shouldn't be in a position of power and i think that's what mrs lind also says basically going it's not that he's no, no one is saying he's an evil person and he should not be there and he should be punished it's more a someone who was incompetent was placed into a position that they shouldn't have been with to begin with and they're behaving themselves in a way that is inappropriate for that space and the same goes with um for example the pastor the fact that that the um you have an 11 year old who's just come back, come into this community kind of pointing out was kind of dull like he doesn't mean what he's saying yeah and other people have thought as much but they haven't said anything 
Well, because you don't say those types of things. No, you don't say those things. It's sacrilegious. But in this particular case, someone who doesn't know that you don't say those things, but doesn't also say it broad, widely, is just saying, telling in confidence to Marilla, this is what, what's going on. This is mm. kind of like he didn't really mean it. The passages themselves were lovely, but he didn't mean it. It, it's, um, it makes you question, like, are actions out there, are there out actions that are essentially evil? Yes. Have evil actions been done by people? Not in this book, necessarily. <clears throat> Although, every day? Every day. Every day we see evil actions. And what we consider evil to a point, we're talking deliberately harmful, if we want to go with that devoid of it's devoid of any sort of moral consideration for another human being and as we yeah i'm just thinking that deliberate harm because the the before when we talked about unintended harm that's not evil it's not it's, it's it, not bad but it's unintended harm is still harmful it's still inconsiderate it is still something that needs to be addressed but that's something that we address through Communication. Communication, through education, compassion. through compassion, through social transformation. Like, that's a social transformation thing. The intentional harm, it comes from, um, it usually comes from somewhere. And as to whether this is due to pride, whether it's due to some sort of ego, whether, like, not the, not the good ego that le lets you actually be... Um, <clears throat> Pursue the things you want in life. I think... Not the ego that is ambition that is enough to make you move forward, but the blind, uh, I should probably not use the word blind, because it's like this, this unbridled ambition to the exclusion of the consideration of any other human being. Mm -hmm. the, the other, like I said before, I'm going after my goal, and if you get in my way, mm -hmm. be careful. And this is right, just because I said so, which, by the way, the, I'm just spitballing here with Dave. These are just thoughts that are kind of randomly coming out and reflections. They are in no ways uh, an absolute, and I would never consider them an absolute. Well, I, I think of anything I say as a conversation starter. I, yeah, I don't consider these things to be f final ever because the more information, the more understanding, the more interaction, the more I listen to perspectives that are different to mine, um, specifically to those who are very often harmed. I think that's the thing. Like those who are often harmed the most by the way uh, society is set up, also known as vulnerable populations. If the more we listen to vulnerable populations, the more we can realize, yes, that action, though the intention was good, the outcome was not. Mm. And of course, not one person speaks for an entire community, but it's still interesting to go, okay, in general... These, well, this if, can if you have communities where the same stories keep getting told yeah. and they're, they're uh, stories of hurt, yeah. something definitely needs to be done on, on a larger scale. And the thing is, I think we sometimes, that's where the media might, and I'm going to straight up say it, the media might get it wrong. Oh, because, all the time. I mean, yeah, but I'm thinking in the way that we portray it, Rather than, for example, looking at, say, the pain that Anne is going through and trying to reflect and be considered, like what she said, can't you imagine what, a, what it must be like for someone like me who's mm. just... Which I, I will say right now, I don't think Mrs. Berry can. No, and I think this is actually an interesting reflection. 
Mrs. Lynde would have gone, ah, yes, she doesn't know any better at this point in time, or she, this is probably an innocent accident. She should have known better, but she couldn't have known better kind of thing. And when, when <coughs> Marilla figured out what happened, she had to stop herself from laughing. She even said, oh, you're a genius at getting into trouble, mm. because it is so comical. It is, it is almost, but, but the consequences yeah. aren't, and the consequences are not necessarily just, and I think that's the part that, where it comes in. If we act in a way that is just, not for those who can, those who can make the decisions, those who are always in charge, those who have quote-unquote power, such as Mrs. Barry does, mm. if they are the ones who are the determinants of justice... They don't take into consideration those who are vulnerable, those yeah. who may not know better, those just coincidence and error and circumstances that are beyond control. Mm. Because for them, it's all about, this is, these are the values, this is what we insist on, and this is what you're going to stick to, and we're not going to believe anything else. We're not going to listen to the, the, the mm. fine print. So it's... Um, it, oddly enough, this chapter ended up being, although it's painful and there's a lot of emotional things, but even that end where you have someone who, presumably in a way, is in a state, is in a, a role of power, Marilla. Mm -hmm. She was in the beginning. She was, she still is, but she was very much emphasizing that I'll just send you back. Yep. We started deciding whether we keep you. Mm -hmm. She was still in that position of. And it, when there was a moment where there was injustice, but she didn't realize it was unjust, she did eventually address it. Yeah. But she has a lot of power. And I think this is what's happening is we're seeing a lot of that. It, it, it's interesting. We're seeing a lot of that, how much power adults can have over children and the impact this has on their lives. Yeah. It's, I like how, and again, I'm sure other people with more in-depth background as they can start their own podcast yes, this is what you and me yeah are this is just about. me thinking like it's interesting that just i want i wonder if that's one of the facets to ellen montgomery's writing which is that idea of allowing people to reflect just how much power adults can have over children which in this case are the vulnerable population well i, I also think back to that uh line where um when Anne was going off about her looks how um Marilla thought back to when one of her aunts, when she was a child, told her yeah. how ugly she looked. And Marilla thought, I wasn't, it was about till 50 before the sting went out of that. One. Yeah, the pain, the pain that we cause others potentially. And I think it, this ending of the chapter where you have someone who is essentially in a position of power, feeling that compassion and feeling that pain for that, for, for the child. Hmm. It's like that idea of that poor little soul and really being, I, I don't know how a better way of phrasing it. It's like being present and being aware of the pain and suffering that she'd be experiencing as a child. Like that, that Anne's going through. Empathy. Yeah, this is very much a beautiful story of growing empathy and compassion. Mm. And I think that's really, and also a little bit of common sense in Anne's part. <laughs> Well, she's going to have trouble with that. Yeah. And we, we know it. We accept it. And then who but determines common her, sense? <laughs> it's part of her charm. It is. She's, she's, she's a sweetheart. Poor thing. So I, I think we got a lot of great discussion out of this episode. Yeah, it's a, it was a little bit detailed. But we're like, it was a crisis. And no resolution. No direct resolution. Yeah. And we yeah. didn't talk about noses. And we didn't spend 10 minutes on noses. Instead, we talked about power structures, essentially. <laughs> But, um, the power structures of noses. No. 
Uh, what does it say when you have a thick, strong nose? You have a thick, strong nose. I don't know. You just have a nose. You're very... Uh, okay, that's dying. Um, my brain is not working. One second. I'm going to form a sentence. The sentence that I was going to form was... Ah, so on that note, mm-hmm. next chapter will be chapter 17. And I'm going to actually, I think, end with the name of the next chapter title. Sure. Which is A New Interest in Life. Ooh, what could it be? What, what could, could it be? be? But yes. So um, the... Music at the start of the podcast was Avonlea by Haygood Hardy. And I love that I've left that one to you because I always mess up the name. Um, And the music at the end of the podcast is I Am The Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me at Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. You can find me on Twitter at Rue mcmoo that's r-o-o-m-c-m-o-o and our uh, podcast has both a facebook page and a twitter account at smbslt podcast and we have an email address just in case that is a more convenient uh, tool of communication which is the same as our podcast it's so it's smbslt podcast at gmail.com precisely that's our that's our address um so until next week i hope you all enjoyed the podcast um please give us a review on itunes um if you can like it on spotify i don't know how that works over there however Uh, the different things are wherever you listen to us if it has an opportunity for feedback please let us know what you think of the show thus far and i hope you're enjoying going through this wonderful book with us yes and appreciating the fact that we occasionally go into deep dive philosophical rambles. But yes. Well, that's what reading's for. Exactly. Till next time. Happy reading, everybody. Bye.